0: For those of you that were gone last week, we, uh, we've been continuing on this series of the Emmaus Road. And what the Emmaus Road is, is that it's what happens after Jesus returns, it's in the book of Luke towards the end of the, of the book, and he's going through, with, he's meeting up with these two guys, and he's, he's almost playing coy with them that, hey, what's going on? Why the long face? You know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. What's wrong? And they say, are you nuts? Have you not been around? Have you not heard what's going on? Did you not hear? The one who we thought was, we were hoping would be the Messiah, yeah, they killed him. He's like, oh really, I didn't hear that, you know, just kind of playing around. And then what he does is he reveals himself to him, and he goes through the scriptures from the beginning to the end. He shows himself in the Old Testament, which is an exercise that we have been doing for the last several weeks and will continue to do because we have to know the Bible. We have to understand the Bible. We, as New Testament believers, especially American, we start at the book of Matthew, work our way to the book of Revelation, then we've tried to find some moral story about David and Goliath or, or Noah in the ark or something. We go back and try to, like, how does this apply to me? And we're missing the framework and the foundation that all of this is built on. And as I showed you, I've got a couple pictures here I'll show you guys again. But it's, it's the enlightening of the Old Testament that reveals Christ. Each and every piece of that was placed there specifically by the one who designed it. And it looks like a pile of garbage until you shine the light on it and you can see what's happening. Go ahead and go to the next one. Same here. A pile of stuff makes no sense, doesn't look like anything, until that light is shined on. And when you shine that light, it all comes together. It begins to make sense. And that's what we're doing. We're going through the Old Testament because Jesus is on every page. Absolutely on every page. You can see him through all sorts of different things, with the types and shadows, and we talked about that a little bit. We, you see it in the offices of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And last week, we talked about how Jesus and the angel of the Lord was there. We see that that's him. These things called Christophanies, if you will, big fancy word that just means a pre-incarnate. Picture of Christ, of a, a Christ coming down, but an incarnate just means when he was here, when he came onto this earth, but pre incarnate uh, uh, portrayal of Christ. And the other thing that we did is we looked at the concept in John 1 of the word of the Lord. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And how that, that is not a New Testament concept. That the Word is a title that is given to Jesus. And how you see it in Genesis 15, you'll see it again today, and you also see it in other passages, how the Word of the Lord came to them, appeared to them. Things that we assume had New Testament foundations actually all have roots in the Old Testament. And that is why we have to understand it. Because when we get done, it should build your faith. As you guys know, I'm very big into apologetics. I love apologetics the idea of defending your faith having the 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 resources in order to do that I love science I'm a geek I know it I you know all of that kind of stuff excites me but what if we could do that with just the Bible I mean what if we held this book in our hand that we claim to be holy and we could just from beginning to end show how everything patterns in there all the way through and how that there's no way possible that could happen if this thing was simply written by man it excites me. I, I, I love our Bible. I love the Word of God. I love getting into it. I love every opportunity we have to read it. Because every time I read it, the Lord shows something new to me that maybe I've overlooked. And a, my biggest problem, and this is going to come as a surprise to you all, is I read as fast as I talk. So I blow through it, and then I have to go back and like, oh, what did I just read? You know, things like that, because it's just how I'm wired. So I am going to try to talk a little slower. I had somebody call me up this week and said, listening to a podcast from back in August because they were trying to research something, and they said, man, you talk fast. I said, yeah, I know. You're not the first to tell me. Probably won't be the last. So today what we're going to begin to do, and we're going to do this over the next couple of weeks, is to look at covenants. What are covenants? Why are they important? How are they used? Things like that. We have the misconception that the new covenant is the New Testament and the old covenant is the Old Testament. And that's not exactly true. It's actually bigger than that. But a covenant in and of itself is nothing more than it's a contract or it's an agreement between two or more parties. That is the simple definition of it. It's this agreement that they have that you do this. I'll do that. Here are the consequences if you don't do this. And here are what the benefits of being in this, this covenant with us. Covenant is how God chose to communicate to us. And it's how He redeems us. And it's also how He brings the guarantee of eternal life to us. It's all through covenants. And so the truths that are revealed in the Bible are all in these covenants, these, this, which is the absolute basis of Christianity. The Bible is a covenant document. It's full of them. The Old and New Testaments, like I said, we said that they're old covenants and New Testament. Testament is nothing more than the Latin word for covenant. That's all it is. That's why we, we say that. So you could say new covenant and old covenant, but don't just think that it's that simple. It's actually more in depth than that. There are patterns to these covenants that are found throughout the Bible. And basically, here's how it goes. It's the initiating party describes himself and what he has done, whoever's setting this up. Then they have this list of obligation that is between the two or more parties, depending on how it was set up. And what follows that is in this section that deals with here are the rewards or the punishments that govern the keeping or breaking of this covenant very similar to a contract that's how we know it today the Ten Commandments are an example of that covenant here are the things that you've got to do so covenants were a very common practice back then they used them all the time it wasn't just between God and man It was between nations or kings or other things. We have contracts. We have this legal system. We don't use covenants per se, although in contracts there are parts that say the covenants of this, you know, things like that. But it's just a little different, but the concept is still the same. When we sign on that contract, we are agreeing to execute our end, and they agree to execute your end. The biggest, easiest one to look at is if you ever bought a house. You agree to finance and bring the money to the table, they agree to let you have the house. And here are the great, and anything else that goes along with it, and so what they used back then a lot of time was called a blood covenant. You'll see shortly here, but it, basically the cutting of a covenant involved the sacrifice in, of an animal or multiple animals to ratify it. In, in other words, they killed something. There was blood that was shed in order to make this covenant binding. The reason they did this is because they believed, and this is what the Bible says, that the life of anything is found in the blood. It's important. They knew this. Sometimes two individuals, they wouldn't necessarily sacrifice an animal, but they would cut themselves. They would cut their hands. Or they would cut their arms. And then they would shake hands and they would grab one another and that blood would exchange. Similar to blood brothers or something like that. It seems very barbaric and off the wall to us, but that's how things were done back then. Because what they were saying is that if I don't fulfill this, then I'm agreeing to death. That's the bottom line. So there was a lot of what this went on. And this is where the idea of cutting covenants came from because it involved cutting. They would cut things or themselves, you know, however you want to say it. So these covenants would be entered into by either two individuals, or, or it could be more than two individuals, or two different groups. Sometimes it would be nations and kingdoms or things like that. And there are numerous instances in the Bible that refer to the types of covenants and the cutting of covenants. You also see them through historical records as you study that out. But for obvious reasons, we're just focusing on the stuff that involves God and man. Okay, you'll see covenants between different nations throughout the Bible, but we're only focusing on the God part. Understanding covenants is important for several reasons, and here they are. First of all, we learn that God deals with man in a covenantally fashion. It's covenants that he deals with man through, and you'll see that as we go through these. And since the covenant is agreement, it is a promise that is made by God. And because we can rely on God's Word for all of eternity, we can take comfort in His promise, in the promise of eternal life. In other words, it's because God promised that we can take comfort in this. He agreed to do this, and, and so on and so forth. Another one is that it helps us see the Bible as a covenant document, that the Old and New Testaments are several old covenants, and then, of course, a new one that comes because of the work of Jesus. A covenant You can understand as a framework that through which the Bible was written, we can understand that God's dealing with us through it in our responsibilities to God and from God. We understand both sides, but when you look at the agreements that are made in this, and you'll see this as we go on. And then, of course, we can better understand the symbols that are used by God in this whole covenant ratification. And you'll see that with the Lord's Supper, you know, communion. And you also see it with baptism. You'll see that as we get to that point. And so you'll begin to see as we go through these, you'll see a pattern begin to emerge. And everyone kind of builds upon the next, making a deeper promise, all leading up to the coming of the Messiah, which is the whole point of all of this. And all of the covenants that God cut with man had to do with the eventual redemption of mankind. Every one of them. If you keep that in the back of your mind, as you're going through these, and it's like, why did they do all of this? It all had to do with the coming of the Messiah so that we could be redeemed. So there are six covenants that we're going to speak about. Um, you could expand some of these a little bit more, but we're going to look at six. The first one is going to be, it's called the Adamic or the Edenic. Now, some people separate those. I'm putting them together because they're basically one and the same. So, in other words, it's the covenant with Adam. Through Eden, you know, you get it, okay? They get all these icks on there, and they're just fancy words. The next one would be the Noahic, Noah, the Noahic, okay, Noah, the covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which would be with Moses, the Davidic covenant, and of course, and the last one would be the new covenant. Those are the six that we're going to look at. We're not looking at them all today. We're going to look at the first three. But as we go through these, I want you to have these questions in the back of your head. First one is, who was the covenant between? Obviously, God is going to be a four-factor in all of that. That's a given. But who was it cut between God and whom? Have that, or who is it for? Because sometimes it was for a person. The next question would be, what are the conditions of that covenant? In other words, is it conditional in the sense that it can be broken? It's a question now, because some could and some couldn't. And then the last one would be, is there a sign of this covenant? Is there something that when you see it, it reminds you of that covenant? Okay? So let's start with the whole Adamic Edenic covenant. Sometimes when you look at these things, now this one isn't as obvious. And sometimes when you look at these, this doesn't just jump off the page. Some of them is very obvious. God's just like, I cut covenant with you today. This is not one of those. You see it in Genesis 1, starting in verse 28. It says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that, the, that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given you every green herb for food, and it was so. So here's some commandments that God gave. He says, be fruitful and multiply, and that you can eat of every tree. Here's why I give it. You got this one, you got that one. Everything that has life eats of this, so on and so forth. And then he begins to expand upon it. So he says you can eat of every tree, but then he gets to one that he says you can't. In Genesis 2, in verse 16, he says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Here's what happens when you break the agreement that God made with man. You can eat of anything. You need to be fruitful and multiply. That's two different things. You need to be fruitful, in other words, productive, and you need to multiply. In other words, I just don't want Adam and Eve. I want lots of Adam and Eve babies. I want them all over the place. This is what God is saying. So I want you to multiply. This is a command that is given to the entire earth, not just Adam and Eve. But he tells them that you can eat of any tree that you want, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is that there? I want you to think about this for a minute. If that tree does not exist, is there a basis of which free will and free love is given to God? The answer would be sort of no. You could make the argument that they maybe weren't going to be fruitful or maybe weren't going to multiply, but I highly doubt doubt that. But because this was there, they had the option to obey God Or disobey God. You pull that out, now they have the option to obey God, and what else is there? There's nothing they could have done to have broken that covenant. Now we all say, God, why did you put that there, pull it out? He has to. Because He loves them. And in order for love to truly be expressed, it has to be a choice. We are not moist robots. We express our love. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you're all right. you're going to love me. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen right? We have free will. We have choice. Your husband or your wife did not coerce you into marrying them. Most of you, I would assume. Some of you, it's like, huh, how did you pull that one off? Good for you. Way to go. You know, that's what everybody says to me. But, but the bottom line is that we had a free choice. It's the same with God. God loves us, so he has to give us an opportunity to disobey because otherwise it's just robotic. There's no love in that. There's no expression of love in that. So, While we look at this, and it doesn't flat out say that this is a covenant, this is a covenant between man and God, you see the principles of it there. God said, if you do this, and if you do that, here's what happens. But Hosea 6 actually talks about this. Hosea 6 and verse 7 says this, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, your translation may say man there, but it should be translated Adam. When it refers to man in the way that it's doing it, it's referring to the first man. In other words, mankind. But there's two things that jump off the page here. They transgressed the covenant. So in case you weren't sure, if this was truly a covenant between man and God, because we look in other places of Scripture and it says that it was. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. I hope you're picking up on that pattern. This isn't just my opinions. Okay? So you see that there. But they dealt faithlessly. With me. How important is it for faith with God? Huge. You have to believe that He is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. What happened when they went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They were no longer diligently seeking God. They put faith in the, the word of the serpent over the word of God. Something that we do every single day. So God's promise to Adam was that through Him all mankind... And of life and blessing, it's implied here through the promises that he made rather than explicitly just spelled out. But he's saying that because of this, you will do this and the whole earth will be blessed. That's the bottom line. Because they'd be in perfection. How could you not be blessed? But he will die if he disobeys, which implies the flip side that if he obeys, he will live. Right? But we have a problem because after that, they didn't die right away. So what do we do with that? Well, when you study it in the Hebrew, the way the wording is set up, it actually says dying, you will die. In other words, they died spiritually, and because of that, because sin entered into the world, they died spiritually at that moment, which God covered up, and He made a sacrifice for them on their behalf, but He covered them up, and and so they died spiritually, but it took a long time before they died physically. Physically. It was a whole different world that they lived in back then. We don't have time to go into the science behind all of that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is they died immediately in the fact that they were separated with God. Now something has to mediate between them and God. And they kick, God kicks them out of the garden. And... And they have to go and wander the earth, and you know the rest of it. We'll get there. But they broke the covenant by disobeying God, and they heeded to the temptation that came from the serpent. And you Flip over to Genesis 3 if you've got your Bibles open. Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. You guys know this because we've read this a hundred times, but it says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you sh- shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." to the woman he said I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you and Adam to Adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which you command which I commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, the re, till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, there's so much in this little section that we don't have time to really explore today. But the gist of it was, God said, "Don't do this," and they did it. They disobeyed. Now, there's parts in here that we could rabbit trail on, where it talks about the woman's desire should be for a husband. Okay, we like that. And because Adam listened to his wife, what does that tell us? Don't listen to your wife; she's nuts. No, of course not. I'm just kidding. But but and all of that. And then the serpent. Don't picture snake. Serpent's not snake. It's not this little slithery thing. Without going into all the detail, remember, serpent is used idiomatically of Satan all the way throughout. And you've seen Ezekiel 14 that he was in the garden. He was in the garden of Eden prior to his fall. They saw what we call Lucifer there. I don't have time to expand upon all that, but if you've been here for any of the other stuff we were doing this summer, you've heard that. But what we see here is the first picture of the gospel. And the whole part that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. You see this picture beginning to paint. And what did we talk about a couple of weeks ago with the whole idea of progressive revelation? That while it's a murky picture, the further along we go, the light becomes more bright and it begins to take more of an image of the shape of Christ throughout this. We have the benefit of what we call hindsight. So that whole picture is the picture of the gospel, that Jesus would come to this earth as a man and defeat death, defeat sin, overcome all of that on our behalf, that it's by grace that we are saved through faith and not of works, lest any of us should boast. It's totally through Him. That is the gospel. And so when we see this here, we see this covenant with, like I said, it's the Adamic or Edenic, depending on who you talk to. But who was this covenant between? It was between God and man, right? God and Adam initially, but really it was on behalf. God was representing the whole earth as man. What were the conditions of, the, of, of this covenant? Well, they were pretty simple. If you do what I say, you're going to be just fine. If you go eat of that one single solitary tree that I told you not to eat, we're going to have problems. And of course, they did that. Okay? So that was the one condition. Is there a sign of this covenant? In this case, really, there's not. Simple obedience would be it, because there was nothing to, uh, that it had to look at to say, okay, I'm in covenant with God, because they were created in covenant with God. They were in covenant from the very beginning. So that's that one in a nutshell. Now, obviously, we could expand upon this for hours, and we're not going to. We're going to move on to the covenant with Noah, or the Noahic covenant. You see this begin in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Genesis 6 and verse 1, you guys all know this story. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters were of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore the children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." Now. There's a lot of theological stuff going on in these eight verses, okay? And we're only going to focus on part of this, but basically the bottom line is this. God wipes out mankind because of the intent of his heart. And that's important that you pick up on that. It wasn't just their actions that were wicked. It was the intent of their heart. And you kind of addressed this a little bit this morning and how the separation between our sin nature and the the renewed nature that God gives us and how that battle goes on. But God looks at the heart. He looks at the intent of the heart. And there was nothing but wickedness there. These weren't people that were loving God and just struggling or maybe making a few mistakes. These were people who were intent upon wickedness. Now, you see that word Nephilim there, okay? The Nephilim just means giants, is all it is. There is... Most certainly something going on there with the sons of God coming down and, and creating this race of giants, if you will. We're not going to go into that today. I'm just kind of putting that out there, but it's a very fascinating study if you get a chance to see it. That would be where Goliath came from as an example. You see that uh, expand further on and how all these nations that they were told to destroy it as, as they were going into the promised land, a lot of these had to do with these race of giants, okay? Okay. Moving on from that. It said that Noah found favor because he was a man who feared God and that he was perfect in his generations. In other words, he had no interconnections with these sons of God or these Nephilim. He had nothing to do with that. It was just he was perfect in his bloodline, if you will. He was exactly the way God created them. So you see, you begin to see this. The flood comes. We know the story. God tells them to get on the ark and the waters is raised, the fountains of the deep burst open, everything comes down, 40 days, 40 nights, we know the story, right? Everything on the earth is destroyed. Finally, the water recedes and then God gives some instructions to Noah. And in Genesis 8 is where you see this in verse 15. It says, then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So we see this commandment given again. The water comes, goes away, it recedes, it goes back, and God instructs Noah and his family they come out of the ark and to be fruitful and multiply again. Two different things: being fruitful is a productive, and multiplying is replenish the earth. Do it again. So they obeyed, and everybody clears out of the ark, and immediately God makes a or excuse me, Noah makes an altar and begins to sacrifice to God. And this is where you see that God makes his covenant with Noah. It's down in verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So this is the end of chapter 8. We're going to jump to the beginning of verse, or chapter 9, and this is really where you're going to see this whole covenant idea go forth. So we're going to read through verse 17. G- Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, let's stop there for just a second. What do we see implied here he says that the fear of man and the dread of man now will be on the animals which implies that it wasn't there before how did noah capture two of everything there was this relationship that man had with animal that was different probably more so the way that god created it it's different today you ever try to catch a cat in the alley they don't like you they don't want to be caught they make that very known right or catch a squirrel that'd be another great one You know, they purposely don't want to be caught. The fear of man is on animal. But this is implying that prior to this passage, it was not that way. It was different. Probably. He's he's now, the question was, does this mean that they weren't eating them? The answer to that is probably, but we don't know. I mean, the wickedness of man's heart. He's now saying that I've given them to you for food. That doesn't mean that they weren't doing it before, but now he's blessing it. It's the same thing as when when kings would take on multiples' wives. That doesn't mean God blessed it. That just means they were doing it, okay? Just so you know. So it's kind of the same thing. Moving on to verse uh, 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, we talked about that just a little bit ago. It's talking about the life is in the blood. Surely for your life blood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So, stop there. You begin to see the idea of corporal punishment, an eye for an eye. If you take one's life, then your life will be taken by the hand of man. This whole governmental system, you kind of see it beginning to be set up here by God. In other words, God's not going to strike him with lightning. There are rules that I have put out, and you guys execute them. Verse 7, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. This makes it easy. What's he talking about? I'm cutting a covenant with y'all. It's not like the last one. This one's more explicit. We don't have to go all the way to Hosea to figure out that this was a covenant. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. And every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So here we get, God lays out the covenant. What is the covenant based on? It's between God and man and all the earth, right? It's made between God and man and benefiting all the earth. That I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now, there are arguments out there that people say that Noah's flood wasn't a global flood, wasn't a worldwide flood, but it was simply an area. It was just one small passage to go over there. If that's the case, we've got a couple of problems, theologically speaking. First of all, why would God tell Noah to build a boat? Why wouldn't he just tell him to move? Hey, flood's coming over here. Why don't you go over there? It's not going to be flooded there. So that doesn't work. The other part is, is that God said, I will never destroy the earth again with water. He's implying that the whole earth was covered. And if that's not the case, then every time there's a local flood, God is not keeping his word. It's important that we see that. This is the promise that God made. I will not do this ever again. Who was the, or what were the conditions of the, 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 the thing? It was really none. It was completely based off of God's word. His promise was that I will never do this again. What did Noah have to do? Nothing. It's just between God and Noah, on behalf of Noah and the entire earth. So there was nothing that he had to do. It was based off the word of God. But what was the sign of that covenant? It was the rainbow. The rainbow is the sign that God made that every time it rains and you see that rainbow out there, it is a sign to remind God and to remind us that God promised that he will never again flood the earth with water and destroy all living things. You guys see how this works. There's a pattern that begins to emerge. I do find it interesting, okay, that the the homosexual movement with the whole rainbow thing. I think it's interesting how they have taken that as the symbol when this was a symbol of judgment against the earth that God will never judge it. And that's the symbol that they took upon themselves. I'm sure that is a coincidence if you believe in coincidences. But it is interesting. And we're saying that even God can't judge me is almost what that's, that's saying. And it's sad because we, we see that the judgment of God is coming to all sinners. Not just them, but anybody. You know, and without a relationship with Christ, it's all for naught. So you see this pattern beginning to emerge here with Noah. So you started with Adam, you get to Noah. This covenant concept goes all the way through. But what about Abraham? When you get to Abraham and what they call the Abrahamic covenant, it starts in Genesis 12. And you need to understand something a little bit before that. In Genesis 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Where God had told them to spread out and multiply and fill the earth. That's what God just told Noah to do. Well, for the most part, they didn't do it. They all came together, they're creating a tower in their own uh, likeness, basically, that we're going to do this great thing, and so we can reach the heavens. And that's a whole other subject, but basically, they're doing the opposite of what God told them to do. So what does he do? He goes and confuses their language. So they no longer have a choice, but if we can't communicate, as I'm about to find out in El Salvador... You'll notice, I talk with my hands anyway, but when I, like, I went on a mission trip to Mexico, it took me two weeks to stop, you know, box, you know, sandwich, you know, things like that. I'm going to constantly do that when I get back, I can guarantee it. But anyway, um, but, but they didn't do what God told them to do. And because they, could, they couldn't communicate, they had no choice but to do what God told them to do. They separated, they spread out. They had to. They went and they grouped themselves together. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on there. But here, Genesis 12 is right after that, where God takes Abraham and begins to make a nation, the nation of Israel. And it's important you understand it because what, it, it, without getting into too much detail, when he spreads everybody else out, it talks about in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82, how God divided the nations and he took for him his portion, his, his inheritance as Israel, made a nation for himself where all these other nations would worship these other gods. Okay? So in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, you see this begin to unfold. Now the Lord said to Abram, and this is before he gets to be Abraham. This is prior to God adding the H in his name. This is still Abram. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. As far as the Terebith tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the, went, that were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, again, he's physically there, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. This Part here seems somewhat insignificant, but honestly, this is the most crucial event in the Bible that happens between the fall of Adam and the birth of Christ. This is crucial. Because what happens is the Lord calls Abram. Abram could have ignored that call. He goes to Abram and he calls him and it sets off the story of the rest of the Bible, of what's going on, the redemption of mankind to bring forth the Messiah. He calls him out of the land and so tells him to go to a land that he would show him. And God promises him that he'll make him, his name great and will bless him in blessing those who bless him and cursing those who curse him. And he will make a great nation out of him and he gives this nation the land as an everlasting possession And through him, that God will be able to bless all the nations and families of the earth. And so there's a lot that goes on in the process of this cutting this covenant with Abraham that we don't really have a lot of time to spend on it today. But the bottom line is, as this thing progresses, you're going to see some things take place. But the bottom line is, the land that was promised him is the nation of Israel. What we see, or sort of see today, is not exactly right. But what we see today is that it's still battling going on. Because they were talking about how the Canaanites were there. Well, there still kind of are. So flip over to Genesis 15, and this is where we're going to pick up the rest of what's going on. All the rest of the stuff between it is God, or Abraham's interaction going on, getting to the land, and all that other kind of stuff. Genesis 15, and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying... Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. The word of the Lord came to Abram. Remember from last week, the word of the Lord. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, again, again, What are we picking up on? John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word of the Lord came. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Stop. How does one get right with God and become righteous? They believe in the Lord. We are saved through grace, by faith. I get asked all the time, how were the Old Testament folks born again or whatnot? By grace, through faith. It's the righteousness was accounted to him, for him, by God because he believed in the Lord. It's the same pattern that we do today. Nothing new changed in the New Testament from that aspect. It's all through faith. Verse 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Because it's full of bad guys. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. Okay. Cutting of the covenant. You see how he's picturing this. The three-year-old stuff really has some significance, but not for what we're talking about today. But you're seeing blood is being shed. God is getting ready to cut covenant with Abram still. And so he's bringing him in. He says, let's bring all these things together. Abram, because this is a common practice. This isn't new. God did not just invent this here. This stuff went on all throughout the time back then. In verse eleven, and when the vultures came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, "Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and he will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions." What's he talking about here? Egypt. They're in a land that is not there. They will serve the people, but God will judge them. And it gives a time frame of 400 years, which is exactly how long they were in Egypt before they went out to conquer the promised land. Coincidence, I'm sure, it just happened. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, what's he talking about? You guys will come back after that 400 year, because a lot of times when they talk about a generation, it's 100 years that they're referring to, because the iniquity, in other words, God's judgment is coming upon these people, but it's not there yet. He's still merciful. Verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, And that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt and to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, a lot of stuff we went through. I tried to break it down a little bit as we went. But the whole smoking oven and burning torch thing is confusing to a lot of people. But this is just imagery of God. You see it in other places in the Old Testament, how smoke was idiomatic with the presence of God you see it on the mountain with Moses up there and you see it in the holy place in the in the tabernacle and things like that um so that's not uncommon but you it's just idiomatic and this is things that point specifically to God why why those images specifically I don't really know but the bottom line is is this is talking about God and you see the process in which God began to cut this covenant with Abram with the animals and all of that and with the promises that were made but the significant part in that is Abram was asleep Okay, jump over to Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. This is some time after what we just read. And I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. This has already been promised to him. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come before you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the Land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. This is where you see wars being fought all the time. This is why, if you've ever wondered why is Israel such a hot button topic, it's a spiritual war that's going on over there. And I will be their God. Verse nine. And God said to Abram, Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you, throughout their generations, this is my covenant. "...which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you." He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai but Sarah shall be her name and I will bless her and also give you a son by her then I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations kings of people shall be from her then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah who is 90 years old bear a child and Abraham said to God oh that Ishmael might live before you Ishmael was the son that he had with the servant Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So he tells him exactly when it's going to happen. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very same day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with the money from a foreigner or circumcised with him okay that was a mouthful genesis 17 that's you see so much going on here this is a continuation that was happening before that we were talking about the same promises that i will give you this land and of you i will make a great nation this isn't a continuation of the promises of god you see that as i said in israel you see that that is the land that was promised to them now There's a lot of stuff that's going on in this whole thing. But the bottom line is this, is that the covenant that God made came with a sign. What was that sign? It was circumcision. Okay, Now that seems odd to us, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But God is very specific of when a newborn should be circumcised. And He says on the eighth day. Now have you ever wondered why the eighth day? What is it significant about the eighth day? Well, this was actually something that we figured out somewhere around 1935. In 1935, doctors learned the importance of vitamin K, which is responsible that it creates the production of, I'm going to say this wrong, profombin, okay? P-R-O-T-H-O-M-B-I-N. So this vitamin K production that happens in a newborn is something that we have in us. If you're short on it, they give you shots for it. But in newborn, it begins on the fifth day. Okay? Up till then, they have some in their system, but it's very little. But the production of it really kicks up on the fifth day. And on, by the time the eighth day hits, the vitamin K, which produces the thing that clots blood, reaches 125% of normal production. It's at its greatest point. On day nine, it drops back down to 100%. Now, is that a coincidence? Or did God maybe know that? Did Abraham know that? Abraham didn't know that. Again, the more, and I've said this a million times, the more science digs, the more it confirms the Bible. The significance of the eighth day is that is when the child is most ready for this. Now, they didn't have what we have today. They didn't have shots of this stuff sitting around that if you start bleeding real bad, they just give you a shot and it'll clot your blood. This was significant. And again, it just points to the supernatural origins of our Bible. But why circumcision at all? What a strange sign, if you will. Why did he say this is what you're going to do? Because he was very specific. Abraham, you're 99. Go do it to yourself and do it to everybody that's in your household at every male. What is significant about circumcision? Well, this is the sign of the covenant. We talk about these signs, and you're going to see them as we go through the rest of them. These signs of the covenant were reminders. Okay, But what happens is every time a child was born in the nation of Israel the seed of the man would pass through the covenant of God in order to impregnate the female, and that child was born under the covenant. You see how that works? Don't make me go in any more detail than that. That's as close as I want to get. We've all been through eighth grade classes, okay? We know what's going on. But it's the guaranteeing of the promise through the covenant of God. It's crucial because Abram was asleep when the initial covenant was cut. It was based only upon God. The other thing is that in the process of this, He changes their names. From Abram to Abraham, from Sarah to Sarai. Why is that significant? In the Hebrew language, the H, which is the ha sound, is the same letter and word as the Holy Spirit. The ruach, the Holy Spirit. And what this is telling us is that the Holy Spirit, because of the covenant that God made with Abram, came upon the founders of, basically, the nation of Israel, that he injected that into their name. Otherwise, there's no reason to change their name, but something significant changed. It's these covenantal promises. What happens with Jesus when he tells his disciple, I want you to go wait, I want you to wait, same thing. You see this picture coming full circle. Because Acts 2 was the culmination of Genesis 11 with the, when the languages were confused and then when they all come back together, right? Go wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't do anything without the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. This is promise that God had made. So we see this, all these promises that are ultimately... Everything we talked about are fulfilled in Christ. You see this confirmed in Peter's sermon when he talks about uh, the whole Abrahamic covenant that it's mediated by Christ. And it's in Acts chapter three, starting in verse 24. It says, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed to you first. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquity. It's a blessing. It's talking about to all believers. It's the promise of the covenant, how Christ comes into play here, because this is the sermon right after Acts 2, where the whole church is founded, where the Holy Spirit falls, and everybody thinks they're crazy, and Peter gets up and preaches, and then 3,000 or 3,500 come to Christ that day and give their life to Christ. And he's saying, this is the promise. that It was made to Abraham. It's fulfilled in Christ. And then in Galatians 3, it goes a little further. Galatians 3 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed to everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessings of Abraham come upon the Gentiles. All nations, Abraham, of the earth will be blessed through you. Here you see the fulfillment of of that if you don't go back and look at this whole Abrahamic covenant thing or any of these then all of these words are just words and we read our new testaments as if it's just idiomatic but the the foundation of everything is built upon the old with this covenant with Abraham who was the covenant between it was between God and man but it was only based upon God it wasn't Abraham if you do this then I will do that God promised there was no conditions except that every child be circumcised. But that wasn't the exception to the covenant. That was bringing you into the covenant. That's how you were brought in as a male child. So it wasn't that if you didn't do this that God's covenant is broken. It was the fact that if you want in on that covenant, here's how you do it. That's the only way. It's based upon God's providence and his commitment to man. Was there a sign? Of course, we just talked about that circumcision. But it's, it's significant because this is the promise of God. That tells us something. That that land that was promised to Abraham and to his descendants still belongs to Abraham and his descendants. That's the wars that are going on over there. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. It's expressly stated that it is eternal because it is only based upon God. It's, that's it. Historically, whenever these two parties would enter into a covenant, they would both walk together through the pieces. And some say that they would go through and they'd go in a figure. So you remember how that was set up. The two pieces were divided of each animal, set on each side. And then they would walk through them and they would come through like this and walk around. And then sometimes they would do a figure eight pattern. But God put Abram to sleep and God did it on his own own. That means the promises to Abram are only based on God's ability to keep them. If Abraham's a part of that, now it's based on God's work and Abraham's work. That's significant, you'll see later as we continue through this. But God solemnizes his complete covenant through this ceremony while Abraham's asleep. It puts it all together. Abraham's not there. And it signifies the agreement that God made unilaterally with man. That This is a promise that I will keep. And you see this put out in Hebrews 6. Verse 13, "...for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he attained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them, an end of all dispute." "...thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for our refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil." Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of the Melchiz- of Melchizedek. Now, this will make more sense when we talk about the tabernacle. But that veil, only the high priest. So you had in the tabernacle, you had the outer court. You had the inner court, which is called the holy place, and then you had the further inner court, the most holy place. And this is where the presence of God resided, and the mercy seat was there, and the Ark of the Covenant was there. And one time a year, the high priest could enter into there. After he ritually cleansed himself, then he would ritually cleanse the nation. But no other man could go in there, only the high priest. And if he didn't follow everything perfectly, he would die in the presence of God because no sin could be in the presence of God. And this just told us that Jesus, Fulfilled that very thing, and you see it. That when Jesus said it is finished, that the veil was torn from top to bottom. And as you you'll see when we talk about the tabernacle, is that that's not an easy feat. This is very thick stuff. But in other words, it's signifying the separation between God and man is over. I have come to give life and give life more abundantly. I don't know about you guys, but I get excited by this because you see through this progressive revelation, it's all pointing to Christ, and we don't don't take time to read our Bible. We go to the verses that, that no weapon formed against me will prosper. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And those are great verses, but they're founded upon promises that God made from the very beginning, and we have got to know that. Next week, we'll go into the other parts of the covenants and stuff, getting into the new covenant, which is what we live in. Remember, I told you that we take for granted all the other stuff, but when we get through talking about that, especially the Mosaic covenant, you'll see how powerful the new covenant that you and I operate in is. And because of these covenant promises, it will begin to answer the question, is can somebody lose their salvation? Because if it's based on a covenant promise, then it has to be based on the works of those people involved in that covenant. Abraham, it's not based off Abraham's work, it's based off God.